Good morning. How are you guys doing today? I hope there's no fashion police here, but I'm wearing a t-shirt on a Sunday morning. That's kind of weird, huh? But it's because uh, it's a special day. Uh, today I want to spend some time with you guys sharing a little bit about Israel and uh, our recent trip over there. First of all, I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, I really know that that's what kept us alive. It kept us uh, really God ministering to us. You know, uh, I think Israel's uh, 7,575 miles away. And so it's a 15-hour flight. And uh, so we don't take those things lightly. Um, and there's a lot that can take place, obviously, if you wander up into areas that uh, maybe are not as safe. And we did do that a couple of times. But um, I know you guys are praying not just for our physical safety, but you're praying for God to touch our hearts, huh? for him to speak to us spiritually. And, uh, and indeed, he did. It was, a, it was an amazing trip. Um, one thing's for sure. For those of us who went to Israel... We will never be the same spiritually. I mean, there's no way that that can happen. You know, we've always loved Israel, but now we love Israel even more. And we need to. Um, as a matter of fact, if you have a Bible, go over to Genesis chapter 12. And it's interesting to me how when you study the Bible, right off the bat, I mean, God, you know, talks about creation in chapters 1 and 2. He, uh, he gives us the fall in chapter 3. And then just the progress of the nations and the dispersion of nations. But early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, he begins to raise up a nation called Israel. And it says right here in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Who's he talking about? talking about Israel right there in the get-go Genesis chapter 12 out of the loins of Abraham his descendants will be as the stars in the sky the sands in the sea God says I will make of you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing notice verse 3 I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and the scriptures say in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed and we of course we know that it's through the Jews that we have the Bible and it's through the Jews that we have Jesus and so in him out of his loins out of this nation this land of Israel the whole world is blessed and so one of the things that we see and we see it through history is that when we as a nation when we as a church when you as individuals, when you bless Israel, God will bless you. How many of you here want to be blessed? Just out of curiosity. You know what blessings are, right? Blessings are when the good things from God come down from His hand into our life. It doesn't mean that life always you know, goes hunky-dory. It doesn't mean that you know, everything's all smooth sailing. I mean, our ship might sink, but we will never drown. You understand that? And that's why it's important for us, I think, as a church to have a heart for Israel. You know, for those of us who went, uh, we've always loved the Bible, but now we love the Bible even more. How many of you have heard of the fact that they call that the Holy Land, just out of curiosity? Well, it's true, but in one sense, they should call it the Holy Bible Land, really, man. Because it's everywhere you go, you see the characters of the Bible, you see the cities of the Bible. And uh, you learn and you just, in a deep way, you learn the lessons 
that God wants us to know. You fall in love with Israel. You fall in love with the Bible. And I think I can speak for those of us who went from Calvary Chapel, Almani. You know, we've always loved God. You know, we try to anyways. But now that love has found an avenue. It's found a way to go deeper than ever before through pilgrimage. If you're taking notes, maybe jot down Psalm 84, verse 5. It says, Blessed is the man whose heart is set on pilgrimage. The ones who have it in their heart. There's, you know, we, after 1948, and especially after 1967, we are so blessed and privileged because now we have the opportunity to go to Israel. We have the opportunity and the privilege to go to Jerusalem. We didn't have that for thousands of years. But now we do. And when we go as a church, I tell you what, the, the people, they love us because just in going, not only do you get blessed because the Bible comes to life, but in going, we support Israel with these trips. And so, you know, so much to share. Uh, and again, not growing in love just because you went, but because we went with an open heart, you know. And I encourage you guys, some of you, you know, I, I, if the Lord tarries, I have a feeling you're going to end up going and it's going to be a blessing. I, I know that's something that maybe not all of us have the opportunity to do. Um, and so you're going to have to wait until the millennial kingdom, you know. <laughs> but um, I have a feeling, though, that God's going to stir it up inside of many of you uh, for you to go to Israel one day. You see, for us as Christians, Israel is important because the Bible's important, Right? It's God's word. It's God's word to us. And in that Bible, the word Israel is found 2,304 times. I stayed up all night and I counted last <laughs> night. <Yeah. laughs> Not only Israel, right, but Jerusalem is found 776 times in the Bible. Um, but even more than that, because uh, there's 72 different ways the Bible refers to Jerusalem. And so if you love the Lord and you love his word, you're going to love Israel. You're going to love Jerusalem because really that's what the Bible is about in so many ways. The city itself is not insignificant. You've got to have a special place in your heart, I believe, for Jerusalem. You know, I'll never forget, never forget. It's just, uh, it's in, in, in just implanted in my mind. When we went over this mountain, actually the mountain is called Mount Scopus. And so you go uh, uh, over the hill and you're on this pilgrimage. You're in the, in the tour bus. And I'll never forget when I went over that hill and for the first time I set my eyes on what I now believe to be the most beautiful city in the world. And that is Jerusalem. And for those of you who have gone, some of you here have gone, you know what I'm talking about. It is breathtaking. It is stunning. When you see Jerusalem with your own eyes. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. My wife gave me a scripture out of Psalm 48, verse 8. She was going through her devotional reading. And the day that we arrived, God gave her this in Psalm 48, verse 8. You got to pray for her because she reads the New Living Translation. But anyways, this is what it says. (laughs) It says, we had heard of the city's glory. But now we have seen it ourselves. That's what happened to me. You know, we've heard about Jerusalem, right? We've heard of the glory of Jerusalem, right? But when you go and when you see it, it's just absolutely biblically, scripturally different. It says, the city of the Lord of heaven's armies. It is the city of our God, and he will make it safe forever. 
You know, we know that one day um, Israel will be safe, Jerusalem will be safe. Let me ask you a question. Are they safe today? No. You can go and you can see it with your own eyes. How many Arabs are there? How many Muslims are there? How many soldiers are there? How many guns are there? How many tanks are there? You can see it with your own eyes. It's not safe now, but one day it will be. And May 1948, they became a nation. In 1967, they regained control of Jerusalem. Another great victory of a war in 1973. This uh, amazing how God is giving us this land. But what we find, you guys, is that God is speaking to us that the end is near. That's what we see with Israel and Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, maybe you've heard that, that saying, Israel is God's prophetic time clock. You know, when we want to know what time it is, we look at our watch. If you want to know what time it is in prophetic history, you look at Israel. You look at Jerusalem. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And I'm going to, I hope I don't bore you guys. Because um, before I was a Christian, I didn't really pay much attention to history. Before I was a Christian, I didn't really study a lot. I I used to not, not go to school. I mean, I went to school, but I didn't go to class, you know. How many of you guys were like that? Is that a curiosity? How many of you guys paid attention during your history classes? I'm just curious. I figured Peter did, but man, I love history now. Now I do. Before I just used to like sports, but <laughs> now I love history. And so today we're going to go through a little history lesson with Israel. Hopefully it will be biblically edifying for you. But um, then we're going to get into what I know a lot of you guys really want to do, and that is just show me some pictures, Manny, okay? And we'll, we'll do that eventually. But, you know, um, in Genesis 32:28, this is the first time Israel is mentioned in the Bible. It says, And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. You know, there's a lot of controversy regarding what exactly does Israel mean. You know, some people say it's governed by God. Some people say it's prince of God. Some people say it's persevering with God. It's interesting. So I don't know if we can be dogmatic about that. But I will tell you this, that the first time Israel is mentioned in the Bible, we are given a a pretty accurate description of her history. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Oh, man. Isn't that a description of Israel? You know, when you look at Israel and you see what God has done, it's a, it's a prophetic uh, event that changes the world. I mean, you know, when we look at Israel, it's kind of funny. Um, my wife, uh, she gave me a play on words. She said this, she says, it's called Israel because God is real. That's what she told me, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, because it's true. It's all coming together in Israel and Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus is coming soon. And we need to know that. You know, one day in the late 19th century, Queen Victoria of England, she asked her prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, she asked him this question. She said, Mr. Prime Minister, What evidence can you give me of the existence of God? And the prime minister responded, he thought, and he said, The Jew, your majesty. The Jew. 
Because when you look at Israel and you look at the history of Israel and you see how they have struggled with God and with men and the Holocaust and the anti-Semitism and the resilience and the existence today, you have proof of the existence of God. Have you ever really studied Israel's history? To me, it's fascinating when you see the first time she's mentioned and, uh, and then just seeing all that's happened since then. You know, of course we know that back in 2000 BC, uh, God uh, promised the land uh, of Israel to Abraham. You guys remember that scripture? It says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, the Bible says, Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, that's what the Bible says. You know, today there's a lot of controversy regarding who that land really belongs to. And if you studied it out, you know that the Palestinians claim the land, that the Arabs as a whole claim the land, that there's a hundred and whatever, 15 million Arabs that would love to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so we look to our Bible and we say, no, the land belongs to Israel. God promised it to them 2,000 years ago. And what we find today is that God's word is prevailing, you know. This was back in the year 2000. You know, and just in case you want to get technical with it, something to take into consideration is that prior to Abraham or Abram, the land itself was never united. Uh, it was made up actually of seven different nations, none of which exist today. Remember the scripture, Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. So the Lord promised them the land. Up to that point, it was divided up into seven sections. None of them exist today. God said, now the land is yours. But what we find is that the tragedy is Israel did not remain faithful to the Lord. You guys know the story, right? I'm going to give you guys just a real condensed version. And God gave them the land. Um, if you read through Joshua and then Judges, and then you get into First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But the tragedy is Israel did not remain faithful to the Lord. Her heart was divided, so she was divided. And then Israel was conquered and controlled. If you look back now at history, they were conquered and controlled throughout the ages. It began with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. The Persians ruled them from a distance. The Greeks. Yes, during that time, you're going to see they returned back and forth off and on. But from that point forward, they were never an autonomous nation. They were never purely controlled as they were by themselves under the leadership of King David as they had been prior to the Babylonians in 586 BC. Over the years, over the centuries, over the ages, they were controlled, they were conquered, they were even crushed 
by the Romans. You read that in history in 70 AD. And from that point forth, and it's interesting, when you really study the history of Israel, they were expelled from the land. We call it the diaspora, where they were expelled throughout the world. They were forced out of their land. They were executed, enslaved, and scattered throughout the world. And so Israel, and in particular Jerusalem, when you study it, was then controlled by, and you guys know, uh, the Muslims, the Crusaders, uh, the Ottomans, I mean, off and on, back and forth, eventually the British. But then, and here's where it gets crazy, in 1948, United Nations passed a resolution and agreed to split the land between Israel and Palestine. For the Jews had begun to migrate back to Israel. And after the Holocaust, there was a sympathy that was sovereign from God, used by him to allow them to be back in the land. Of course, we know, as you study history, the Palestinians never accepted that resolution. Therefore, it's kind of interesting, the Palestinians never have had a state that is acknowledged by the Arab world. Why? Because to the Palestinians, they rejected the resolution of the United Nations. And therefore, to them, they want all the land. They were not willing to divide it with Israel. And so immediately, the Arab world uh, pronounced war on Israel. And you guys know, in 1948, uh, the Jews actually won that war. Now, Jordan still maintained control of Jerusalem but it would only be until 1967 when once again the Arab world went on the offensive against Israel. Imagine that. The entire Arab world surrounding the nation of Israel all coming against them in six days. Israel wins the war. And in 1967, they regain control of Jerusalem. I mean, this is epic in the prophetic calendar. It really is. In 1967, once again, the war began, and Israel won, and what we find it is a sign of the times. Um, this is a, a, a newspaper of the day. The state of Israel is born, and when you look at this in 1948, you look at all these different headlines right here. U.S. recognizes Jewish state. Uh, most crowded hours in Palestine history. But then you see the Egyptian Air Force split fires and, and they begin to bomb Tel Aviv. And it's just crazy, you know, when you see the history of the world. But what we find is that this is a sign of the times. Um, another place maybe we can go to in our Bible real quick is over in Ezekiel 36. You see, the Bible predicted that in the last days that Israel would be regathered as a nation. And they would be prosperous. They would be fruitful. This land that prior to them being there was not blessed. But when Israel came back, God showed his hand, not only bringing them back, but blessing the land. Here in Ezekiel 36 and verse 16, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. 
To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood which they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. God said, because of your unfaithfulness, God, uh, he scattered them throughout the world. So when they would go, for example, you know, to Babylon or they ended up in Europe, Soviet Union, I mean, you name it, you know, they were a testimony in one sense to their own unfaithfulness. But what they did is they brought the name of the Lord and they dragged it through the mud. And so God said, I'm, I'm concerned about my name. And so we read in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in your eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. You see, that's what God has done. He's brought them back into the land. You know, if you go over to chapter 37 for a moment, Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. You see, then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. You see, Israel is a sign that God is true, that his promises are real. You know, even in one sense, this is a quick side note, maybe you're here and you're struggling with your finances, or you're struggling physically, or you're struggling, you know, with an unsaved loved one, or you find yourself in different places. You know what you need to hold on to? The promises of God. Because the promises of God are true. And you look at Israel, they're a promise from God. And God said, one day, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take those bones, and I'm going to give life to them. You know, the interesting thing about the, the Jews is that when they bury a body, uh, they wait for the body itself to decompose, and then they take the bones of that body, and they bury it in a different location. You guys see that, right? You've seen that throughout history. The bones. Well, here in, in Ezekiel 37, he's talking about the bones. 
He's talking about the bones of Israel, the bones that had died. And God said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you back into the land and I will give life to your nation again. You know, and I read that and I, and I see and I, and I go and I see it with my own eyes. And I'm like, wow, Lord, your, your word, your word is true. You know, it's interesting. Um, Netanyahu, he, 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 he gave a speech uh, to the nations of the world. And he declared, this is, a, this is a, a, a leader of a nation, right? He declared to the people of Europe and the world that the prophecies of Ezekiel 37 had been fulfilled. The Holocaust, he said, represented the dry bones and graves of the Jewish people. And out of that horror, the state of Israel was resurrected. Just as the Lord said what happened through the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. And so this is Netanyahu speaking to the nations. And Joel Rosenberg said, Rarely has any world leader given a major address on an international stage declaring end times prophecies in the Bible have come true. But this is exactly what Netanyahu did. You know, it's interesting. In 1800, um, near 1800, there were maybe 24,000 Jews in Israel. In 1922, uh, there were 84,000 Jews. And so it's growing, but it's not much. But today, you know how many there are today? 6.1 million Jews. So, you know, you might not be a subjective person. You might not be feeling it. But if you're an objective person, if you like math, if you like to think, what you do is you look at the facts. And then you take a step of faith and you realize that the God that we serve, he's alive, he's real, he's powerful, he is able. Never has a nation group lost their land and regained it as Israel has. Never in the history of the world. What's God trying to say? God's trying to say, I'm real. Not only that, what he's trying to say to us today is that I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And we need to make sure that we're living our life in the light of the Lord is eminent return. And so now, after all this has happened, now what? Well, I'll tell you what. We can go visit Israel. <laughs> That's what, man. And that is so cool. When you go, man, you are going to learn so much. You know, and I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I have um, 1,737 pictures. And I'm going to show all of you, all, all of them today. <laughs> And I have video, and I not only have 1,000, over 1,700 pictures, I have like 3,000 lessons that I was writing down and I was learning. And so, obviously, I can't share everything with you, but I'll share a few things with you guys today. Um, I mean, a lot of things. Uh, and hopefully at the end, there's something that I share that the Holy Spirit will use in your life to encourage you. To, to encourage you in Jesus Christ. Because I tell you what, the Jews don't have Jesus. Some of them do. There's a few that are saved, but for the most part, they don't. The Muslims, they don't have Jesus. The Jews, you go and you see it with your own eyes, they have religion. The Muslims have religion. They don't have a relationship. We have Jesus. We have a relationship. We have freedom. 
I mean, you should see, again, we love everybody. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the way that they treat the, the women, um, you know, is crazy. You know, the way the Muslims do, the way that even the Jews, we went into one beautiful, it was a beautiful synagogue. But it's interesting to me how all the men are able to sit in the front and all the ladies, they're kind of cast in the back in a little balcony on the top. I mean, it's, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but did you know that in uh, Judaism and in Islam that a woman is not allowed to touch the holy book? Did you guys know that? Because they are so concerned that the, the woman might be unclean. And you know what that is, right? When she's in her cycle, um, when you don't want to talk. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> you know, but um, what I'm saying is that, imagine that. All you girls right now, you got your Bible. Just hold it for a second. Hold it for a second. And thank God you're a Christian. You know? I mean, you see the contrast. It is absolutely overwhelming. A lot of people were asking us about the food in Israel. And I was like, why are you asking about the food? <laughs> but you know how that goes, you know. And it's interesting in Israel just how everything has to be kosher. So um, when, there's a lot of things I can share with you about the food. But anyways, the one thing that kind of stood out to me was there's no meat for breakfast. Because, you know, they believe that you can't milk, mix meat and dairy products, Right based on some pagan practice where you, you know, boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's just crazy, right? So anyways, um, they have no meat for breakfast, uh, which means no bacon, which was really tough, and <laughs> no dairy for dinner. And so that's the way they made sure they were kosher. And they're so meticulously concerned about this that they don't even use the same dishes. So if you use dishes for dinner, you make sure you better not use those dishes for breakfast. And we can go on and on regarding the lessons. I mean, we got kicked out of this one area that we were eating in. I think Joey had a piece of pizza, and I had a, a, some type of a cheese sandwich, and they said, no, you can't eat that there. And, and so they were very meticulous. Um, but you want to know what was, what was missing? Love. Love. You know, they have certain hats and they have a certain dress and the way that they wear their hat and that certain hat they wear, it identifies them as far as what rabbi they follow. But you want to know something? What did Jesus say? You will know they're Christians by their love. You know, and again, not to overgeneralize, but I was trying my hardest to approach a an Orthodox Jew to approach someone, to share with them, to ask them questions, just to strike up conversations with them. And on and on and on they refused. And I don't know if maybe I just had a bad luck of some sort, but what I thought to myself is that if you are here and you claim to know God and have the true God, that if you serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would you not have love? But I didn't experience that. You know, it's interesting when I went there, and you know, you should know these things. I should know these things huh, by now. But do you guys know that Israel is described as a land of milk and honey? Do you guys know that? Why is that? And I always just thought of typical milk and honey, but basically the, the milk, it comes from the figs. Did you guys know that? And the honey, it comes from the dates. I never knew that. 
you know, and so I got some figs and I got some milk and I got some dates and oh, they were so good. Why? Because it's a land that is blessed in their fruit in so many ways. You know, I was thinking about that passage in Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Because there's a guy that had gone to Jerusalem and come back. And so Nehemiah's all, tell me all about it. Tell me what's going on over there in Israel. Tell me what's going on over there in Jerusalem. And so let me share with you guys. I have about maybe 20 minutes left, 15 minutes left. Uh, maybe 30. No, I'm just joking. Um, let me share with you guys a few pictures. And I'm going to just, you know, man, I'm just giving you just a little bit of what God gave to me. I mean, it's so amazing. I'm still trying to process everything. And that thing is going to take a long time, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to try hard. You know, uh, when we first got there, we were in Joppa. And uh, there's uh, Dan. And it's kind of like what you would see if you were to go to Israel. You would, you know, find your spot. And then you get into the Word, you know. And I don't know if you can see there on the top of the picture, but uh, you have some uh, structures over there. That's modern-day Tel Aviv. Uh, really a bustling city. But this harbor, this Joppa Harbor, is actually considered to be the oldest harbor in the world. It's there that in Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, they floated the logs down this, the, from Lebanon, and they were then you know, transferred, and they rebuilt the temple. And, and this port right here, it was here in the book of Jonah, the Bible says, that he... You know, God said, I want you to go and minister to the, the, the Ninevites. And what did Jonah do? He went the opposite way and he hopped on a boat right here in Joppa and he headed away from God. You know, maybe you're here today and God's calling you in a certain direction and you can look at that port right there and you can identify with the fact, which way are you going? Are you going closer to God? Are you following Him? Or are you, are you running from Him? I'll tell you what, God will go after you. But he won't force you. I pray you make a decision to follow him. Of course, we know in Joppa, it was also that Peter, uh, he you know, did so much there, but he received the vision where actually we see the Gentiles were considered to be clean once they came to Christ. And it's an amazing story. You read it in Acts chapter 9, verse 11. After that, we went to a place uh, called uh, Aphek, also known as Antipatris in the Bible. And it's kind of cool when you guys look at stuff like this. I don't know if you like history or not, but this is where Paul the Apostle was taken. You know, on his way to Caesarea, he was taken here and he spent the night and he was safe. And, uh, you know, it's just fascinating being there. I actually have a picture of Sister Anna. She was there. And look at her foot. See her foot right there? She's all happy, huh? Um, that's the road that Paul the Apostle walked on. It's cool. You look at the cardos of the different city. You know, some people think we were traveling by bus when we were in Israel, but we actually weren't. Um, we were actually going by camel. 
No, that was cool. I wish they would have let us uh, just kind of ride them like crazy, but of course they didn't. Um, you know, um, is, this was a pretty interesting place. Um, this right here is, uh, is a precipice just outside of the city of Nazareth. And uh, so many places that you go in Israel, you're going to see these breathtaking valleys and views that are just amazing because there's so many hills and mountains. But there you see Joey right there. Um, and, and what you find is that we believe this is a place because Nazareth is not too far from there. Where in the scriptures, if you remember in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 30, Jesus was speaking in the synagogue. At first they liked what he said, but then they didn't. And so it says, and then they took him out of the city and they were going to push him off the cliff. But what we find is that the Lord just, it wasn't his time yet, right? But you, you see stuff like that and you're like, wow. You're like, wow, this is where the Lord was. You know, later we went to uh, Capernaum and that's considered the town of Jesus. And uh, we visited a synagogue. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to Mark chapter 1, we can read it real quick. Because I think this is pretty fascinating. It says in Mark 1 verse 21, Then they went into, the, into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. So this would be the vicinity. And it's interesting, when you look at the different synagogues, whatever city it is, it could even be Masada, all the synagogues, they have a similar architecture. Um, Jesus would be here, right? Jesus would be teaching in this synagogue right here. I thought it was cool just looking at it, the different angles. You can see these things online as well, but it's not the same as being there yourself, man. I don't know if you can feel it, but... It's pretty cool. You know, anyways, um, looking at that, what we find is in Mark chapter 1. If you go down to verse 29, look, it says, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon. And, uh, you know, for those of us who went, we saw it. It's cool because not far from there. You could just walk in, in, a, in a jiffy and you find the house of Simon. It's right there. They have uh, the inscription on the wall of where Peter's house was. And so, you know, a lot of things, uh, when, you know, when you're doing the studies there, and they just kind of blow your mind. Um, this next one right here is us on the Sea of Galilee. And I, I kind of I wish that you guys could hear the music that they were playing when we were sailing the Sea of Galilee. But you guys remember that song, Oceans? Right? And what it talks about is taking that step of faith. What it talks about is kind of like getting out of the boat. And, uh, and I think that in many ways, going to Israel, you know, again, I know that it's not for everyone and not everyone can afford it. But uh, for some, it's just a matter of where, whether or not you consider it to be a worthy investment. And, you know, whether or not you would be willing to put your funds there to something that might be spiritual instead of something that's, you know, physical. But anyways, I believe that when you take that step and when you go, um, that God will bless, that, that God will honor. I think some of you probably saw this picture right here. This was uh, me uh, one day waking up in the morning and just uh, spending time with the Lord in the Sea of Galilee and seeing the sunrise. 
I mean, that was one of my, my special moments right there. Um, we went over to uh, the caves of Adullam, and uh, this is where David hid from Saul. Um, we found ourselves in Masada. I don't know if you guys have ever studied the history of Israel, but after the Romans uh, conquered the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, thousands of them fled to Masada, and it's this amazing fortress. It's huge, and uh, there's so much history there. Um, this is me. I had a special time in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think you guys may have seen this picture. I was there. I took my shoes off because I really, I sensed God's presence and I knew, you know, for a fact that I was standing on holy ground. Um, this is a view of uh, the Temple Mount area, the whole area from the East Gate. As a matter of fact, I have a picture here that shows you a, a, a little bit closer of a view. Can you guys see those two gates right there? Um, that is considered to be the East Gate, or also, also known as the Golden Gate. And let me, let me close with you guys with a couple of scriptures along these lines. You know, because at the end of the day, what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to enter through the Eastern Gate. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but it's interesting you know, if you look um, over in Ezekiel 44, we'll read that in just a second. But, you know, when you face the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem is this eastern gate. And the Bible indicates that Jesus obviously passed through the gate many times. So we teach that, as even the Jews teach, that the Messiah will return through the eastern gate. Okay, so you know what? And we see this when you guys go to Israel, you're going to see the way the Muslims have done everything they can to prevent uh, everything that has to do with Jesus and Christianity and the Jews. They sealed the gate during the rule of the Suleiman and then they actually put a cemetery in front of it thinking that somehow that would prevent Jesus from entering through those gates, right? According to Jewish tradition, the Messiah will come through the Golden Gate and bring about the resurrection of the dead. Unlike the lush expanses of grass associated with many cemeteries, the Mount of Olives is a mountainside of stones. Ironically, Jesus ascended up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and he will return uh, on the Mount of Olives as well. You know, in Zechariah 14, and that might be a good scripture for you to write down, in verse 4, it says, when Jesus returns, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now, you guys can't really see it from here, but let me just share this with you real quick. Why would Jesus come back on the Mount of Olives Put his foot there and there would be an earthquake for him to enter in. You might ask that. You read Zechariah and you're wondering why. Here's the reason, okay? One of the things you'll find when you go to Israel or any archaeological excavation is that there's what's called tells. And what a tell is, is when a city has been there, maybe they've abandoned, maybe it's been destroyed. Over the years it's covered and then they build another city on top of it. And then another, and then another, another. Jerusalem has 21 tells. That's how many cities have been rebuilt there. Okay, so this has actually been rebuilt. Now here's the fascinating thing about this. 
I don't know if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose you here because I might lose myself. <laughs> so pray for me, man. But there's two, there's two views of thought, okay? Now, if you were to look at the Temple Mount, what you would find is that the East Gate's over here, but the Dome of the Rock is over here. It's farther over here. And so the Dome of the Rock is that place where the Arabs built that golden, ugly thing uh, over what they believe to be uh, the place where Muhammad ascended. But of course, we know it wasn't. That's where uh, Abraham offered or was going to offer his son Isaac. That's where the holiest of holies was at one time. So our guide, he's a Jewish man, he's not a Christian. He believes that the eastern gate is actually over here and the eastern gate is buried beneath the cemetery. And if he's right, this is interesting, if he's right, that makes sense. That Jesus comes, he stands on the Mount of Olives, an earthquake splits the ground, and then he goes in right under, under the modern you know, construction and he goes right there into the eastern gate, just like the Bible says. It's interesting to me, you know? Another thing that's interesting, just to kind of make you guys think, okay, is that if that is the genuine place for the eastern gate, if you were to go up on the top of the Temple Mount, what you would find is that you have the Dome of the Rock, but on this side of the Temple Mount, you just go straight back, you have another structure, another stone that's encased, that many Christians believe to be that is the proper place of the holiest of holies. And you want to know something? It's kind of cool. It makes sense because if that's the case, I mean, why would they build the eastern gate on that side if it's supposed to be over here? And, and, and then what that would mean is like the Bible says, well, we believe a lot of Christians will go and then they'll walk the Temple Mount and they'll say, no, the temple is supposed to be built over there. And so that's how we can rebuild the temple. Because the real holiest of holies is just beyond that eastern gate. So I don't know if I lost you. If not, I'm, I'm sorry. But it, it's pretty fascinating when you go and, and you read all these things, you know. Uh, there's so many things I can share with you guys. But um, I don't know. Um, Maybe, maybe another time. I know next week we're going to get back in the book of Mark. Thursday night we're going to be in the book of Ezra. So for those of you who are, you know, you, you want the Bible teaching, I, I'm right with you, man. I don't feel comfortable doing other things. But I think every once in a while, especially after a trip to Israel, I think it's cool to push pause for a second and ask God to teach us a lesson. So many lessons. You guys ever wonder why the Jews pray like this? Why do they pray like that? Wow, oh, you know, well, you know what our guy told us. He said that the reason is is because there's 613 bones in the body and muscles that are all connected. And there's 613 commandments in the Torah that God has given. And so what they believe with all their bones and all those muscles and in hopes of obeying all those commands, they kind of give everything they are in prayer. Now, of course, we know that that's not the way it always works. It's not just a physical thing. Because what the truth is, at the end of the day, God looks at the heart. Right? I am so blessed I'm a Christian. I'm so blessed that we can do something like this, maybe a little different today. I'm so blessed that I could wear a t-shirt. 
You guys still love me, right? Because God looks at the heart. I can wear dirty vans. I was telling my wife, I need to get new vans. She's on next paycheck. You know, just stuff like that, you know. <laughs> we are so blessed that we are Christians. But I tell you what, if you have the opportunity and if you find in your heart, you know, to go to Israel one day, man, I would, I would, I would say go. As a matter of fact, we'll probably put a paper in the back and I'll ask Henry to maybe to put a couple lines there. If you're interested in going next year or maybe the year after, maybe it might take you two years to save, put your name down there, okay? And that way I can know as a pastor that there are some people that are interested in going because it takes about a year, uh, it really does, to organize a trip. You know, one last thing. I, I could tell you a lot of lessons that really spoke to me. Um, none necessarily more than the others, but I will share with you this. And why don't we have the musicians come forward? Um, if you go to the Solomon's porch, it's, it's still there, and you see all the steps, and, and Jesus would be teaching from there. And uh, the steps are designed in a, in, a, in, a, in a rather interesting way. The way that the steps are designed, and our guide, he had one of the young gals run up the steps, and he had her run down the steps. And, and when she ran up the steps, it was like boom, boom, boom. It was like, man, she was flying. But when she ran down the steps, it was, uh, it was tough. It was a struggle. She was slow. She almost fell. And, and what he was saying is that Solomon's porch, in, in one sense, was designed, and this is so fascinating to me, that, the, that it's, it's, it's easier to run to God, they said, than it is to run away from God. Going up the steps as opposed to coming down the steps why is it more difficult to run away from God? You want to know why? Because God loves you. Because God will chase you down. Because God will send people into your life to invite you to church. Because God will have people praying for you. Because God um, is an everlasting God that loves you. So much. And I learned that as I contrasted Judaism and Islam and Christianity. And I learned that in such a special way about Jesus. We have Jesus. And so maybe you're here today and, and you know, you find yourself trying to run away from God or you've kind of been running away from God. What I want to do as we close today is just ask that, you know, you would know this God is true. His promises are real. He's coming soon. And that you would get your life right with him. That as he's chasing you down, so to speak, and he's knocking on your heart, that you would open the door and you would let him in.